Good morning, church. Good to see you today. Let's uh, take our Bibles and go to Malachi chapter 4, the last chapter of the Old Testament. It is delightful to see you, and uh, what a great, great season we've had studying these minor prophets, and I look forward to sharing this message with you today. I want, our, I want all of our teens and adults and young adults that are going to camp, if you'll uh, come on up here. We're going to have a time of prayer with you real quick. If you will, um, most of you are fully aware that Youth Camp Conference is a catalyst opportunity for God to uh, really speak to hearts and initiate major uh, life change. And I am thankful for our church that really pretty much exclusively sponsored this whole group to be able to go. And so these young people are going on behalf of our church, and, and many of you uh, helped get them there. And I'm excited about this. Uh, this was a much smaller group a few years ago, so it's exciting. I want to have some of our men and women come up, and if you'll just pray, pick somebody to pray with. In fact, uh, just come on, come on right now. And, and then uh, if you pray with somebody, I want you to make sure you get their name, and I want to invite you to pray with them all week. So just pick somebody. Come and pick a... Come and pick somebody, pray with pick a teen. How about that? Pick one. Come on up here. I'm gonna pray, uh, I'm gonna pray out loud. And uh, and then and then I want you to just if you don't have their name, get their name. There's some there's some orphan ladies over here. Um, I, I know they're tough, okay, but I need uh, come on, Zach, come up, help me, Zach, Kayla, will you guys somebody? Um, who else? Brian, you guys do you mind? I think we're are we all covered now? Can we do that? Dan, you're good. Okay, I think we're good. Adopt a teenager. I know it's tough. I know you often would rather send them away than adopt them. Uh, but uh, just find one. I'm going to invite you to. I think we got one here. We got one here. We got one here. We got a. We got an orphan. Got an orphan. Taman. Okay. We all covered. I want you to get their name. Every evening at 7 o'clock this week, Monday through Thursday, we'll have an evening worship service with about 4,000 teenagers in Tennessee. And, um, and then uh, each morning, uh, I think about 9 o'clock, there'll be a chapel. And uh, then pray for us, the leaders, as we drive today and all the things that will be happening. Um, Don't just want to go to camp. God doesn't move. It's worthless trip. And so, if you will, take it, take it serious with me, if you will. Okay? Let's pray. In the name of Jesus, we come today, Lord, and we are thankful for... These young people, the families, the teams that will be working with them, we pray that this will be a week of life change, transformation, every heart would be open, every intended message from you would be received, and our prayer for safety, for unity, for great fellowship would be real. I pray that you would call men and women to your service. We pray that you would speak to hearts and change lives. Thank you for all the people that gave so we could go. And Lord, may this be fruit to their account. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. Amen. I hope you'll commit to pray with me as these young people find their seat. We're so thankful for the opportunity to host them at camp this week. And uh, thank you for helping them get there. This is the 12th and final sermon on the Minor Prophets. For those of you who have been here along the journey, we have labeled this series Major Messages from the Minor Prophets. The Minor Prophets are the last 12 books of the Old Testament. They are called Minor because their sermons are shorter in length than what they call the Major Prophets. So the Major Prophets would be like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. They're longer. Isaiah has 66 chapters. Malachi has four chapters. So with rare exception, these books are smaller. And they um, uh, also are relatively obscure. Most people, most people don't know much about them. They, uh, they'll read them maybe if you go through maybe an annual Bible reading plan. So maybe once a year you'll check Zechariah or Malachi or Haggai off of a you know, Bible reading plan. But the truth is, most people know very little about them. And that's unfortunate uh, because they are powerful. And their message is incredibly timely for both then and now. How many understand, not all the Bible was written to us, but it was all written for us. Meaning... All the scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable uh, for doctrine reproof. So that's all scripture in all places for all times has relevance. And so we look to those minor prophets and we learn uh, the lessons that God had for them. And we'll teach you that in a minute. Then, we, of course, we make application for us as well. Starting next Sunday, I'm going to do something completely kind of off the rails, okay? Uh, before I get there, I wanted to tell you about it and then uh, also let you know, I normally, I know we have a lot of guests here today, a lot of new people, I normally am around to, to, to fellowship and hang out, but as soon as I'm done preaching, I'm running over to our Mayport campus to uh, greet those folks. I haven't been there since the church started, and so I'm going to have an opportunity to share some things with them. So I'm not one of those guys that normally ducks out and takes off running for my car. I'm not that big of a deal, okay? Uh, I normally hang out until the last person's gone, but I can't do that today, so I'll catch up with you later. Next week, though, I'm going to start, I'm going to do a four-week small series called The Vault, and here's what I'm going to do. Next, year, next week is my seventh anniversary as pastor at River City Baptist Church. So I'm actually going to go back and preach my four favorite sermons from the last seven years. And uh, we're going to have just a good old-fashioned revival meeting for the next four weeks, okay? So that's what we're going to do. Then August 20th, uh, for all of you um, apocalyptic junkies, we're going to start the book of Revelation, okay? So that's where we're going. I'm excited about all of it. But uh, let's pause here and let's finish up our series today by reading the last chapter of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly will be stubble. And the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that will leave them neither root nor branch. But to you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall arise. With healing in his wings. And you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. You shall trample the wicked and they shall be as ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. With the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming, day and coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest I come and strike the earth 
with a curse. Have you ever noticed that the last word of the Old Testament is curse? You ever notice that? The next time God will speak to his people and record scripture is going to be in the Gospels. The very next page, if you were to turn it, which is 400 years after Malachi spoke, the Bible says this is the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So the answer to the curse is the Lord Jesus Christ. If you follow the law, that's the Old Testament, it ends in a curse. But if you follow Christ, it ends up with grace and salvation and eternal life. That's not what the message is about, but I thought it was pretty cool. So uh, I want to preach to you this morning on this subject. The sun will rise again. The sun will rise again. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the opportunity we have, Lord, to hear the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. I pray today that you will speak to our hearts. I pray that you will minister the word. And I pray that we'll receive it gladly and be changed by it. Jesus' name, amen. San Francisco, California was once a coveted, bustling city with high returns on real estate investments, but recently, more particularly since 2020, the real estate climate in San Francisco has changed dramatically. One example would be in June, the CEO and chairman of Park Hotels and Resorts stated that they were going to default on their $750 million loan that was left on their $1 billion investment on two hotels downtown, including the Hilton, uh, which resulted in 2,597 hotel rooms in the lush downtown district of San Francisco. Now, in order to flip that investment back, the original owners of the property who loaned the money Uh, are now looking to literally shred likely 90% of the value estimation in order just to get somebody to occupy those buildings in the future. So meaning the $1 billion investment is now $100 million. And I know all of us would like to have either, but if you have a billion dollars and it turns into $100 million, that's not a good sight. He quoted as to why his business made that decision literally to walk out on a $975 million loan and just quit paying He said, after much thought and consideration, we believe it is the best interest for park stockholders to materially reduce our current exposure to the San Francisco market. Now more than ever, we believe San Francisco's path to recovery remains clouded and elongated by various major challenges, both old and new. Record high office vacancies, meaning people are not working in an office anymore. Concerns over street conditions, that would be actually safety concerns. Lower return to office than peer cities and a weaker than expected citywide convention calendar through 2027 negatively has impacted business and leisure demand and will likely significantly reduce compression in the city for the foreseeable future. Lack of security, extended lockdown regulations, complicated financial issues, skyrocketing uh, rate of return on loans is all causing cramp. Now, many of us have experienced this on a personal level. Many of us can remember just a couple years back, just financially, two and a half, three percent loans now up to seven percent, and it's really causing an enormous amount of pressure. But I think we all know 
that the issue in San Francisco is much more complicated than financial difficulty. As stated in the quote from this chairman and CEO, it was issues concerning safety. Uh, San Francisco is, uh, as, has done much to deconstruct the safety concerns, the police presence. They've done much to uh, allow an increase of, of, uh, of homelessness. And now, once thriving cities with major bustling hotels have now been reduced to tents along streets. And it's creating a massive chaos. In fact, what it's actually creating is a mass exodus. Oftentimes, when people are surrounded by chaos, destruction, loss, degradation, their instinct is to flee. Their instinct is to run. And, and while we see this pressure right now in so many fronts in our, in our culture, uh, our longing as Christians should be ultimately to flee. The truth of the matter is we all should, I hope, long for a day where we are no longer encumbered by the burdens and the pressures and the society decay that we are all experiencing. I mean, in case you wonder what I'm talking about, just open up your phone and click on Fox News and just read through the headlines and you will immediately be faced with quite a few disturbing things. And it's not like this is new. This has been going on for years, years. And I'm not just talking about years since certain people take office or since certain people left office. I'm talking about years since, like, God created the heavens and the earth. And if you go back and you begin to trace what has actually happened through biblical history, through modern history, and so on and so forth, you're going to see a continued repetition of destruction and chaos and its primary perpetrator is sin and the fall. And it's not going to stop. It won't slow down until the Son of Righteousness rises again with healing in his wings. Now, this is exactly what Malachi is talking about in his short four-chapter prophecy. Now, now, Malachi is a bit of a mystery, honestly. You go back to chapter 1, and the Bible basically just says the word of the Lord came to Malachi. There's no information. There's no information about Malachi. There's no way to really know exactly when Malachi did give his word except for the content of the book. Now, this is one of the keys to interpreting the Minor Prophets. If you do not have a clear-cut uh, historical setting or a clear-cut date like we saw in Haggai and Zephaniah, the, the way that you determine, or best determine, I should say, where the prophet fits in history is by looking at what the prophet said. What did he address? What concerns did he bring up? And when you do that with Malachi, most Bible scholars would place the book of Malachi somewhere toward the end of the book of Nehemiah, Probably in chapter number 13. Now, if you go back to the book of Nehemiah, you almost are tempted to think, well, wait a second. It doesn't sound like Nehemiah. Nehemiah was like the builder, right? Nehemiah rebuilt the wall and all this great stuff happened. That is true. But most people know a lot more about the first half of the book of Nehemiah than the second half of the book of Nehemiah. And the second half of the book of Nehemiah shows what happens after Nehemiah leaves Jerusalem, after governing Jerusalem for 12 years, Nehemiah is going to return to his original job as the cupbearer to the king of Persia. And so he leaves Jerusalem, goes back home to his home. Meanwhile, Jerusalem is left, the people of Jerusalem are left, having committed and literally signed their names to a covenant that is recorded in Nehemiah chapter number 10. So in Nehemiah chapter 10, Nehemiah gathers all the people together, reminds them of what God has said. 
These people then uh, hear the covenant. They, they sign literally their names to the covenant. And then Nehemiah leaves and goes back home. For, each, for somewhere between 2 to 15 years, Nehemiah has gone back to Persia. And we would all be shocked to discover that in the time that he has gone back to Persia, Israel literally falls apart again. But should we really be surprised and shocked? And this is actually what they do over and over and over and over again. For instance, God puts Adam and Eve in a garden, gives them everything they need, and what do they do? They sin against God, and the whole place is destroyed. Then he gives them the promised land, and what do they do? They fail to uh, commit to what God told them to do, and then you have the book of Judges. Well, then God gives them a king, but it's not the king that, that he wanted. It's the king that they wanted, and they turned their back. Even the king turned their back on God, and so what did God do? God sent them David. And God sent them Solomon. And then after Solomon, the kingdom divided. And then you have this destruction that takes place over and over, leading to the exodus. Leading to literally the, the, the deportation of these people uh, out of Jerusalem to Babylon. We talked about this many times during the series. Now for 70 years, these people have been in Babylonian captivity. And God finally lets them go back. He lets them go back to thrive and build again. And they do. And then within 12 years... They do it again. They do it again. They do it again. And finally, at the very end of the Old Testament, God tells us something that we all need to learn this morning. This cycle of sin and destruction and chaos is going to continue, not just through the Old Testament, but through all Testaments, through all histories. And it will never cease until the Lord Jesus Christ comes again. Folks, that is our message this morning. The message of this morning is that there is coming a day when the Messiah will put an end to all the crazy cycle of destruction and rebellion that man could throw at him. And only when the Lord Jesus Christ returns in his glory and establishes his future kingdom is this chaos going to subside. Now, Malachi chapter number four, he talks about this, and I want to share with you a, a three-part breakdown of this chapter. Number one, I want you to see the purpose of his coming. What is the purpose of the coming of Christ? What is the purpose of the Messiah, the Son, mentioned in verse number two, rising and bringing healing to these people who have so turned their back on him? Well, verse number one tells us that this day of the Lord that's spoken of in verse five, this coming of the Son, mentioned in verse number two, is, is, is literally purpose, first of all, to punish or destroy the wicked. Now look how this is described in verse number one. For behold, the day is coming, watch it, burning like an oven. And all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly shall be stubble. Now folks, this is a very graphic picture, a very obvious picture with a very obvious meaning. When Jesus Christ comes again, it's going to be like a furnace, like an oven, like a fire. And the people who have rejected God are going to be like stubble. What's stubble? It's, it's uh, like hay. It's like dried up branches. When you want to go start a fire, a campfire, what do you do? You go look around and you find little twigs that are dead and laying on the ground. And you bunch them up and you get them started. Or you cheat by using gasoline or other things like that. Okay, whatever. Whatever you do. But we all know you don't cut down a live tree and try to start a fire with live fresh wood. No, what the text is plainly saying is this. When Jesus comes again... There will be a final and ultimate destruction of everyone who has rejected him, culminating in his final and ultimate destruction of this earth 
And you read about this in 2 Peter. You read about it certainly in the book of Revelation that will start soon. Folks, listen, one day, this day of this world will finally and ultimately be destroyed. You talk about global warming, friend. There is certainly a global warming event coming when the elements are burned away with fervent heat. That is going to happen. And this world is going to be completely decimated. And the final fruition of the fall of man is going to be rolled up like a scroll. The earth is going to be disintegrated. And all those who reject God will go down with it. And then he'll establish a new heaven and a new earth. And the former things will be passed away. The second part in verse number two is this, but to you who fear my name, there's a different deliverance. So there's the punishment of the wicked, that's in verse one. There's the deliverance of his people to those who fear his name. This reminds me of Daniel chapter number nine, verse 24, where God says that the day of the Lord is going to be to finish transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for the iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness. So in the same tune, that, 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 that people who reject God are going to be destroyed. People who follow God are going to be delivered. Now, this should not be a very difficult uh, answer for you uh, as you consider this. On which side of this would you like to fall on when it's all said and done? When Jesus Christ comes again, and he will, he's coming to destroy all of evil. He's coming to rescue his own people. It shouldn't be very difficult for you to figure out which side of this you'd like to land yourself on. My question to you is this, whose side are you on? It may not be so simple as to say, yeah, I'm a Christian, or yeah, I go to church. There's a lot of people that are Christians, and a lot of people that go to church, and sometimes, oftentimes, in the Bible, that is more strongly warned against than anything. Religion may actually not be your friend. Religion may be the greatest veneer to cover up what's really actually going on inside of your heart. Now, folks, i got to tell you, uh, being in church doesn't make you a Christian any more than being inside of a garage makes you a car. So you're not a Christian just because you go to church. You're not a Christian because you do good things. You're only a Christian because you follow the Lord Jesus Christ, and you are his disciple. And I'm quite convinced that churches can be filled with people that do not know God. So do you know God? Do you have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? I'm, I'm working with my son Blake right now. He's six, and Blake's now starting to ask us questions about the gospel. It's, a, it's one of my favorite times watching kids uh, grow up and learning about the gospel. And I, I, I was talking to him actually last night, and a couple different times we, we went through this. And, and uh, I ended up pulling up a video because I thought it would help him. It's a great video for those of you that have kids. It's put out by the Gospel Project, the same uh, group that puts out our curriculum that we use in our children's ministry. And this guy so plainly and simply explained the Gospel that literally anybody could understand it. And he gave that simple presentation. At the very end, he said, kids, look, it really is as simple as ABC. And I agree. ABC. Accept, believe, confess. That is the Gospel. Accept that you are a sinner. Accept that you cannot save yourself. Believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Believe that he died on the cross, shed his blood, rose again, and that he is the only way to heaven. And confess it to him and confess it to others that you are a disciple of Jesus Christ. Man, that is as simple as it gets, and it is as biblical as it gets. It is as real as it gets. There is no other gospel than that one right there. So it doesn't matter if you go to church. And by the way, on the flip side of that, it doesn't matter what you've done. 
You see, in John chapter 3, a, a religious man gets saved. Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. In John chapter 4, a woman who had burned through five marriages and was committing adultery with a man that she wasn't married to also got saved. What does that tell you? Nobody is so good they don't need to be saved. And it also tells you nobody is so bad that they can't be saved. Does anybody listen to me today? What I'm saying to you is this. There is a welcome mat in front of heaven, and it says, Whosoever will, let him come and take of the water of life freely. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, you can be saved. And you should be saved before the Lord Jesus Christ comes. Number two. Not only do you see, first of all, the purpose of his coming, you see, secondly... The promise of his coming. And what, what does this promise include? Verse 2. But to you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. And you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. What is it going to look like when Jesus comes again? It's going to look like him returning for his people. Verse 2. This is exactly what the New Testament emphasizes. By the way, for all of you scholars out there, I know we have a few in the room, and uh, I get it, I get it. I am well aware that this is a prophecy to Israel. So I'm well aware that this specifically is talking about the second coming. I know that. But folks, in the broader discussion of the advent in the Bible, what the Old Testament doesn't even address is the rapture of the church. And so, folks, listen very carefully. I understand the difference between second coming and rapture. I'm not exactly a novice here when it comes to the rapture or the second coming. I had a guy one time come to my office. I was uh, teaching college in California, and he, and he, he sent uh, a secretary over, and they wanted to interview me. They wanted to ask me a question about the rapture, and they wanted to take down some notes. And so they came over to my office, and the woman sat down, and she had her notebook out. She got all ready. She had her notebook out, flipped her, uh, flipped her laptop open, looked at me and said, okay, Pastor, here's the, or Brian, here's the question that, that they want to know. Uh, what, tell me about the most significant Bible verses in the Old Testament about the rapture. And then she put her fingers down on the tablet and she was like ready to write. And I looked at her and said, there aren't any. There aren't any. Because the rapture is a church issue, not an Israel issue. Look, okay, and I'm not going to spend a whole lot more time going deeper. But I am saying this, that you can't apply... Issues related to the second coming in the Old Testament, to the rapture of the church in the New Testament. And so there is my application for you today. And I am saying, what is going to happen when Jesus comes? Well, he is going to return, and he's going to take his people unto himself. Titus chapter 2, verse 14 says, We look for the blessed appearing of our great God, even our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. John chapter 14, verse 3 says, If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again to receive you unto myself, that where I am there, you may be also. The Bible says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, The Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Watch this. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. That is a wonderful message we bring. It is a glorious carol we sing. Jesus is coming again. It's a promise. But what happens when he comes again? Watch this. There's two things that happen. First of all, he brings healing in his wings. Now, I can't say how many times I've shared this verse with people who were laid on a bed of affliction. And the truth of the matter is it really doesn't have anything to do with physical healing, but I send it anyways because I think it encourages people. But the truth of the matter is what he's talking about here is a great healing that comes with the deliverance when Jesus Christ rises again and comes for his people. Now, that healing 
is described for us, I believe, in the book of Revelation, chapter 21, verse 4, when the Bible says this, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, no more sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. When the Lord Jesus takes his people with him to heaven, there will be an ultimate and final healing that comes in his wings. And how many of you are glad for that today? How many of you are glad to know that there is coming a day where those things, no sickness, no sorrow, no sadness, no brokenness, no tears, no crying, no separation, no death, the former things are passed away. That's why Peter said, I'm taking it. Jesus is going to take us to an inheritance that is incorruptible, undefiled, and does not. I don't think about half of y'all are getting what I'm trying to say out to you this morning. I'm trying to tell you there is coming a day where there will be no more bad news. There will be no more ambulances. There will be no more hospitals. There'll be no need for police officers and governors. There'll be no funeral homes in heaven. Why? Because the former things are going to be passed away after Jesus takes us out of here with a final and ultimate healing in his wings I'm excited about that I don't know about you I'm getting about weary and tired of this earth and its groanings and its trouble and its pressure and its its news it's all chaos friend I can't wait for Jesus Christ to come again and rescue us out of this chaos that we live in like one person said your best life is now listen friend, I got news for you the only way your best life is now is if you're on your way to hell my best life is not now. Are you kidding me? I wake up every day with the realization and trying to raise kids, the realization with my own flesh, the realization of chaos in our country that, that this place is broken and it is not going to be fixed. It's not going to be fixed in an election. Friend, y'all crazy. Help yourself. Help yourself. You think it's going to get fixed in the next election. It's not. All it may do is get your hopes up a little bit more, only for them to be dashed a little bit harder next go around. Friend, you better get your eye off of that White House, and you better get your eyes in heaven, and you better realize that the Lord Jesus Christ is the only answer. And by the way, he's your answer for the here and now, too. The brokenness, the struggle that you're in right now, looking to everything in the world except for him, looking for every answer except for him, looking for every hope except for him, looking for every piece of joy outside of him, it's never going to happen. Only Jesus has healing in his wings. Finally, in verse number, I love this, look at the end of verse number two. You will go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. It's going to be a day of celebration. The picture here is growing up calves who have been stall-fed and ultimately releasing those stall-fed calves from their stalls and letting them freely run out and roam with joy. Can you just imagine being this picture of this? animal pinned up and stuck behind a stall and finally the day is comes where the gates swing open and the small calf is able to prance out of there and freely roam around the grass laden lands of Israel it's a beautiful picture it's a picture of joy uh, by the way it's a picture of being set free being set free that's what Jesus does Jesus sets people free finally how do we prepare for this coming? The preparation of his coming is seen in verses 4 through 6. How do we prepare for his coming? And the, the short answer is this. We listen to the word of God. Now verse number 4 says this. Remember the law of Moses. That would be a reference to the Torah. 
my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all of Israel with statutes and judgments. He's saying, go back and read what you have recorded. Guys, that's a really good preparation for his coming. Read the scripture that God has given to us and left for us today. And then it says this, verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming and great dreadful day of the Lord. There's an allusion to this in chapter number 3. But obviously, I think there is a picture here of the Elijah-like status of John the Baptist. Interestingly enough, these people would often be looking for either the first coming or the second coming of Christ. Because oftentimes, even the prophets didn't distinguish between the two. And he's saying, my prophet's going to come. And he is going to try to prepare you for this Messiah's coming. And unfortunately... You, Israel, are going to reject him and you're going to be smitten with a curse. That's where we're at now. That's the, that's the curse that Israel is under right now. And now God has opened up the gospel through the Gentiles and to us today. And, and what is he basically saying? No, he's saying the way that you prepare for my coming is by allegiance, listening to and processing the word of God. So here's what I want to do for the remaining like five minutes of my sermon, okay? Don't get your hopes up. I want to go back for a few minutes and I want to show you how Malachi gave the word to Israel right here and right now and how what things he spoke to them about and I think it's amazingly relevant. So think of it in light of this. He's ultimately ramping up to preparation by the coming of the Lord. But now, getting to that, he's going to address several things. I'm just going to read them to you. I want you to think about this. This is how God would want you to prepare for his coming. In chapter number one, for instance, he challenges people to give God their very best. For instance, in chapter one, verses six through eight, he says, as a son honors his father and as a servant his master, if I then am the father, where is my honor? And if I'm a master, where is my reverence, says the Lord of hosts? You offer defiled food on my altar, but you say, in what way have we defiled you? You offer blind Animals as sacrifice is not this evil. I love this. Offer it to the governor. See if he'll accept this. What's he talking about? He's talking about the people had stopped giving their best and sacrifices that God had referred to. Here, let me tell you what they gave him. I'll just tell you. They gave God their leftovers. And God says, won't you try that with the king? You think he's going to accept this jacked up animal sacrifice that you tried to provide me? Why would you give this to me? I mean, if I'm really your Lord, your master, and your father, why would you give me your leftovers? Wow. I wonder how many Christians today give God, at best, their leftovers. Leftover time. Leftover service. Leftover resources. Give God whatever you can give him. Whatever you can fit. Whatever works. You would do a whole lot more for a whole lot less of a person. And yet we do that to God sometimes. He challenges them in chapter 2 about the positions of leadership that have been corrupted. Speaking of preachers and leaders, he says, For the lips of priests should keep knowledge, and the people should uh, seek the law from his mouth, for he is a messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have departed from the way. You have caused many to stumble at my law. He goes on in chapter 2 and verses 13 and 14 to talk about they've not been faithful to their marriage commitments, which is a huge thing you can read about in Nehemiah chapter number uh, 13. And this is the second thing you do. He says, you cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying, and yet you have 
you have dealt treacherously with the wife of youth. In other words, you're still coming to church. You're still looking like you're responding to the word. But, but you're walked out on your wife that you said you'd be faithful to. It's amazing. And there's another one in chapter 3. He challenges the people, listen to this very carefully, to stop robbing God by not tithing and giving their offerings to God. I want everybody to, I want you to feast your eyes on this one, okay? Turn back one page. I want everybody to look at chapter 3, and I want you to look at verse uh, number 8. Look at this very carefully. Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? Look at the answer. In tithes and offerings. Friends, look, I'm your friend to tell you this today. And by the way, I'm not I don't have any self-serving reason to tell you this. Okay? Our church is not struggling. We're not over here, like, trying to figure out how we're going to pay the electric bill next month. We started two churches this year. We have more money than we've ever had since I've been here. This is not about, this has nothing to do with what we have or what we don't have. This has to do with you. If you do not tithe and give offerings to the Lord, listen to the quote, you are robbing God. <laughs> My goodness, folks, I'm just going to go on record and say this. There's a whole lot of things I'd rather be than a God robber. Friend, put me on some billboard, FBI most wanted. I'd rather be on the FBI most wanted list than be on the God robber list, okay? That's not a list I want to be on. But here's even worse. Here, here's, here's what's worse. Why do people rob God? Why do people not give? So they can have more for themselves, obviously. So look at the next verse. This is great. You are cursed with a curse. For you have robbed me. People that rob God end up being cursed. Verse 10. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse. Cross-reference 1 Corinthians 16, verse 1 to that. That there may be food in my house. And try me now in this, says the Lord. Here, here, guys, look. I know some people might be struggling with this. And I'm not trying to make anybody feel bad. So I'm just trying to read you the Bible. But listen very carefully. I've seen people put this verse into practice when I'm getting ready to read to you. So I'm going to challenge you this. If you're robbing God today, let me give you a challenge. Put God to the test. Put him to the test. That's what that verse says. Prove me. Prove me. Put me to the test, God says. And what is he saying? He's saying, listen, if you give, I am making you a promise. I will pour out my blessing upon you in such a measure that you will not be able to hold what I bless you with. Amen. And on and on and on we could go. What is the point? The point that Malachi is simply making is this. Listen to the word. And there's these practical ways in which we can listen. This is just a sampling of them. What I'm saying to you is the best way to prepare for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is very simple. You listen to the word of God. You respond and do what the word of God says. And that is the best way to ensure that you are ready for his coming. Finally, it was 2001... When the Federal Emergency Management Association, FEMA, put out a list of three natural disasters that they were predicting to happen within the next 20 years. Number one, a major terrorist attack in New York City. That happened just a few months later. A hurricane in New Orleans. That happened four years later. 
Their suggestion was they needed to beef up airport security and repair the levees in New Orleans so there wasn't a, a disaster. Neither took place. The final one that is yet to happen, and we're now about the 20-year mark on this, is a devastating earthquake in San Francisco. It has a 99% chance of experiencing at least an 8.0 earthquake striking sometime in the next 20, 30 years. Again, this was 2001. Preventative upgrades for the entire city would be $260 million, which, by the way, we know, according to what I said at the beginning of the message, they're not doing any of this. But to reconstruct the building after a devastating loss would be $200 billion. So you could be preventative right now. You could invest a smaller amount of money to prepare yourself for something that's inevitably incoming. Now, folks, what are the chances that FEMA, after all these research and studies, predicted New York City terrorist attack, predicted the New Orleans hurricane, also predicted this earthquake is going to happen in San Francisco? What are the chances this is not going to happen? Let me tell you what are greater chances of happening is that when Jesus says he's coming again, he will come again. And so do not defer maintenance and end up not prepared for him to come. Let's go ahead and pray if we could today. God, I pray that you will work in our hearts today. I pray that we will receive the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. I pray today, Lord, if there's someone here that doesn't know you, if there's someone here that has never trusted Christ as their Lord and Savior, I pray they would. I pray also for those who would hear the word as Christians and prepare ourselves for your best. I pray that they will listen, and I pray that they will heed the word. As you're said before the Lord today, I just want to ask this simple question. As a Christian, how many of you say, preacher, I needed that warning and challenge today? In my life, God spoke to me. Would you just slip your hand up? Can I pray for you? I needed the challenge and warning. Good. Praise the Lord. It's great. I think we all did in some measure. And I wonder if you're here today without Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, if you would open up your heart like the front door of your house and receive him. Accept that you are a sinner. Accept that you cannot get to heaven on your own. Believe Jesus is the Son of God and provided a way of salvation through the cross. Confess him. Confess to him that you believe. Confess to others that you are a disciple. Today I want to encourage you to do that if you've never done that. Right there in your seat, you can do the believe, you can do the confess right there. You can do it all. Admit, believe, confess. You can pray in your seat something like this. Lord, I admit I'm a sinner. Just go ahead and do it right now. Lord, I cannot save myself. You can, you can right now believe in him. Lord, I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe he's the son of God. I believe he died and rose again. I believe he's the only way to heaven. And now confess to him that you are accepting him as your Lord and Savior. Lord, I claim you right now by faith as my Savior. I want to be your follower. I want to trust in you. You can do that right here. And right now, if you've accepted Christ today, I want to encourage you to walk to the next steps booth right after we dismiss. And some men there and some ladies will be able to take a, a Bible and show you, help you, give you a gift, encourage your newfound faith. May God bless you as you receive the word today. And Stephen comes to close our service. Or Andy, I'm sorry.